This is a podcast from BBC Studios. BBC Studios. A commercial subsidiary. subsidiary. Of the BBC. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I have actually a quote, if you'd like to hear it. 25th January, 1995. At 1800 UTC, universal time coordinates, on a clear, moonless night, while 150 nautical miles east of the Somalian coast, a whitish glow was observed on the horizon, and after 15 minutes of steaming, the ship was completely surrounded by a sea of milky white color with a fairly uniform luminescence. The bioluminescence appeared to cover the entire sea from horizon to horizon, and it appeared as though the ship was sailing over a field of snow or gliding over the clouds. Welcome to the BBC Earth podcast, the podcast that sees things a little differently. I'm Emily Knight, and this week's episode is all about a shift in perspective, about looking down on the world from a slightly different angle and ending up with a brand new view. And we're starting with a mystery in the dead of night, in the middle of the open ocean. These are the kinds of accounts that we have from sea captains and crews dating back to the 1800s. Waters that glowed steadily, kind of looking like milk or clouds from horizon to horizon in all directions. You know, bright white in the middle of the night. For as long as humans have been going off to sea, they've been coming home with extraordinary tales. Tales of mermaids and monsters, but perhaps stranger than both of them, tales of a phenomenon known as the Milky Sea. Mariners all over the world report sailing into vast patches of milky white glowing ocean, shining like the full moon as far as the eye can see. Some reports have characterized it as plowing through molten lead or sailing on the field of snow. We know almost nothing about it, what it is or how it happens, But we do know it's very rare, and it never lasts long. Luckily for us, there's this man. My name is Stephen Miller. I am a senior research scientist at Colorado State University's Cooperative Institute for Research in the Atmosphere. We do things with satellites. As luck would have it, Stephen has just the right tools to see things nobody else can see. I work with instruments that are very capable of measuring low levels of light, moonlight, or city lights at night, things that we typically would not see during the day, but at night we can, with the right sensitivity, bring out. The white whale, if you will, of satellite remote sensing of low light is bioluminescence. The earlier sensors couldn't really see it. It's too weak of a signal. It's too small scale. But then we thought about, well, are there any forms that are large enough scale that a satellite might be able to see with the right sensitivity? Stephen knew of the phenomenon of the Milky Seas, and he thought he had the tools to see it. But where should he look? 
Milky seas are rare and unpredictable, and the ocean is a big place. He stumbled on the answer in an account written aboard a steamship travelling off the coast of Somalia on a dark winter's night in 1995. I've been collecting my own sets of Milky Sea accounts uh, that I've received. In there, there was a report from the steamship Lima. Its captain, James Briand, had reported seeing a glow on the horizon and glowing waters. So this short article provided exactly where they were when they first saw a glow on the horizon, which they thought might have been an aurora, exactly where they were when they entered these glowing waters, their direction and their speed, and where they left the waters and when. So this was just kind of a shot in the dark, so to speak, to see if we could match up satellite observations with this very detailed report. We dug into the archives of the satellite data that we had, and lo and behold, we did have several passes right over that area off the shore of Somalia. When I first looked at my result on the screen, I didn't really see anything. Um, I kind of peered into the blackness of the image and couldn't pick out much more than just uh, the smudges on my screen. We looked at adjacent nights too, and, and there that smudge was again in the same place. It was part of the image itself. The eureka moment, I guess, of the discovery was when we plotted those very detailed location coordinates from the Lima onto the image. When I plotted down those points on the image and saw them lining up exactly with the boundaries of the fingerprint smudge, chills went down my back. It was almost like seeing a ghost. You know, something that we hadn't ever seen before in satellite imagery was popping out right in front of my eyes. And we took a moment to breathe and, and look at what we were seeing. It was the first uh, confirmed satellite view of a bioluminescent milky sea. This is actually the first satellite observation that gives you not only a, a photograph, if you will, but also the, uh, the full scale of this massive uh, glowing event. The size of the state of Connecticut, that's about 15,000 square kilometers. That's 10,000 billion billion, if you will, individual bacteria. And so they start to glow for the purpose of attracting fish. That's the leading hypothesis. To be honest, I really don't think we've solved the mystery of the Milky Seas. Whereas we've been able to detect them, there isn't concrete evidence of how they form, why they form, what does that tell us about the ocean ecology. So we just need to really find out a lot more about it leverage the satellites to help us pinpoint where they are occurring, and then get out there and do some more samples. So that's what we're doing right now, is we're combing the oceans of the world at night, on the nights where there's no moon, and just peering through the imagery and looking for our next case. Sometimes, when the whole world is looking one way, it might be worth taking a glance in the other direction. On August 21st, 2017, America was preparing for a total solar eclipse. Solar eclipse happen every two years or so, but this is the first one to cross the continental US since 1979. So we're really excited about that. Everybody in America will get a chance to see it. People gathered in their hundreds of thousands, donned their special eclipse glasses and turned their eyes towards the sun. Yeah, it's not just Something like it crosses the tip of Florida, and so everyone has to fly to Florida to see it. <laughs> it's, it goes across the entire U.S. It's completely from west to east. But while the eyes of the nation were turned upwards, 
two little girls were looking somewhere else. Um, well, actually, when I grow up, I want to be a robotic engineer. These two are sisters. You could be yeah. a robotic engineer who's also an astronaut. Yeah. And you can, build, <laughs> you can build robots in space. That would be fun. Rebecca and Kimberly Young from Seattle. I'm not sure what I want to be when I grow up. I don't have it all planned out like she does. While the whole country gathered on the ground to look up, the young sisters were planning on getting as high as possible and looking back down at the Earth. We're going to be launching our weather balloon into the eclipse. Well, an eclipse is when the sun, moon, and the Earth all align. From the Earth, you see the sun completely blocked by the moon. But we were really interested in what that would look like from a high altitude. We're hoping to film the moon's shadow over the Earth from um, a high altitude. Their plan was to launch a sturdy weather balloon filled with helium and loaded up with instruments into the stratosphere. If they timed it just right, their cameras should be in a position to look back down and see the enormous shadow of the moon, 70 miles wide, racing across the surface of the Earth. They weren't actually the only ones to think of it. When I first came home with the idea, we thought, oh, we're going to be the only ones doing this, we should keep it secret. And then we found out about the Eclipse Ballooning Project. Tons of teams across the entire path of totality were going to be doing the exact same thing that we're doing. You might think that we would have been sad because someone took our idea, <laughs> but we were excited because that meant someone at NASA had the same idea that we did. We wanted it to be at a certain height when totality hits, and that's only two minutes and 30 seconds. We've been calculating things for about a few weeks. There is two GoPros, one of them will be pointing at an angle downwards, and hopefully we might be able to see the moon shadow on the Earth. One thing I'm personally interested in seeing is us waving to it as it leaves. Yeah. <laughs> Where's the, we should get the GoPros ready. Are they charging? Are you excited? Yes, definitely yeah. excited, but also and nervous. nervous. How do you feel about the weather right now? It's, we went outside and it's a little bit too windy than we'd like. It's nice and clear though. It is clear. Okay. It went off extremely quickly. One, because it was such a bigger balloon, much more than we were used to. But two, it was super, super windy that day. From what? Ten. Ten. Oh. It just shot off. Five. Yeah. Really, really quickly. Five, four, three, two, one. It was really exhilarating. All of our hard work was finally paying off. Nice. There is a little bit of a feeling that you're kind of just letting go of the entire yes. thing. You're relinquishing it to whatever nature wants to do with it. Um, it's part of what makes the whole experience exciting. Yeah. Okay, now let's, well, let's huh? go watch the eclipse. The eclipse was amazing. I, I didn't know what to expect, but oh my gosh. I was really, really surprised all around us because we were in such a flat place. You could kind of see the sky getting darker and darker just surrounding us. It was like we were in a fishbowl. The moon is going right over the sun. I think awe is a very good way to put it. The power that this thing has that we didn't even know. We didn't know if that could affect us like way it did. It's here, it's moving. I have a balloon. It's on, it's a balloon, it's moving, it's moving. Oh, we got it. We got it. Yeah. Altitude. We could track its location. 
it's working. Yeah, it was pretty much just plots on a map. We could look at it on a laptop or on our phones. Yeah. Another TV channel. It's going east. There was one point where it actually went into Nebraska, and we thought we were gonna have to drive all the way and pick it up in Nebraska. Yeah, we had no idea if it was gonna come back or not, or if it was gonna keep going into other states. <laughs> but what goes up must come down. They set out to recover the balloon and see if they'd captured the moon shadow on and film. I said it. Um, it was about a two-hour two, two three-hour drive. To get from our campsite to where it had landed. And, and then, then one hour... Walking there and probably a little longer back. My yeah. guess is we're not quite that far. I don't know. So it's somewhere near those cows? It was a pretty long okay. hike. It's like an hour out and an hour back. An hour? And we sort of just had to find it and look around that area until we saw the laundry. Yes! Kimberly! You found it? We had been looking around that area for a while, so when we finally found it, we were really excited. Careful the cows! Come on, come on! Oh, nice! Oh, wait. Oh, wait. No, hurry up! Oh, yeah. oh, oh we got it back. Um, nice job. How do you feel? Awesome! We did it! We found it! And it's all... Pretty much we watched it as soon as we could, yeah. We didn't watch the whole thing through, we just skipped through until... Until we saw um, that little blue shadow on the horizon. Just seeing the whole section of Earth was just completely blacked out. It was like someone covered a flashlight. Yeah, it, yeah. it was amazing. And it's just so cool to see our planet that we live on and how it looks from up above. I think being able to see the whole thing reminds us of how small we really are and how much kind of our world matters to us. Like make, it is this huge planet, but it's also small and fragile, especially in the whole network of space. Yeah. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Even on a budget? Quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. You're listening to the BBC Earth podcast, where we're telling stories of getting a different perspective on life on our planet. The perspective shift you get when you view the Earth through the eye of an orbiting satellite can be profound. And it's not a view we've had for very long. We started using Earth observation satellites back in the 1950s, but they were quite coarse. 
over the last decade, two decades, we've seen a real jump in the resolution. And as more satellites get up there and the resolution gets higher, you can really study more and more things. So I'm Dr Peter Fretwell, I work here at the British Antarctic Survey and one of my roles is to use satellite imaging to study wildlife, animals of the Antarctic, penguins, seals, whales, albatross um, from space. Peter was one of the scientific advisors on Earth from Space, the new show from BBC Earth telling stories of life and new discoveries on our planet using cameras in space. Peter's research opens our eyes to stories we'd never otherwise get to see. I think there are two real main benefits of using satellite imagery. First of all, you can get to inaccessible places. The other one is that you can do huge areas. For instance, if you're looking for whales over a whole ocean, it can be extremely expensive to send a boat or a plane to go and survey them, and the satellite can do it at a much cheaper cost. I work with the, the very highest resolution satellites you can get. Now, if you think about the size of the pixels, each pixel is about the size of an A4 sheet of paper. Anything that's bigger than that, we could theoretically see. But what we find is that really it's got to be several times that size before we can make it out with any confidence. <laughs> the penguins were the first animals that I personally studied from satellites because we didn't know where all the emperor penguin colonies were. It's very hard to study emperor penguins because they breed in the Antarctic winter, not in the summer. So there aren't many scientists go down there in the harsh conditions of the Antarctic winter. So we didn't know what the distribution was or what the population was. It was an accidental discovery, really. We were actually mapping an area for our pilots, and as I'd been mapping, I'd been looking at these quite coarse Landsat images. With the Landsat images, the, the size of the pixels is about 30 by 30 metres, so 100 foot by 100 foot. And um, you couldn't see the individual penguins on there, but I had noticed these strange brown stains on the ice. Now, the ice should be pure white where it was, and I couldn't work out what these brown stains were, and then I realised that actually this was the, the penguin poo on the ice. So since then, we've been able to use satellite imagery first to find the colonies with this coarser resolution imagery, looking for the penguin poo on the ice, and then when we found it, we can send the higher resolution satellites, which can actually see the penguins themselves, and actually count the penguins either individually or in their huddles, so we can work out what the population is from that. So we've been doing that now for the last 10 years and, and we've doubled the number of known colonies, increased the known population by about the same amount as well. The satellites often take different parts of the electromagnetic spectrum, so they won't just take red, blue and green light, they'll take infrared, sometimes ultraviolet, so you can get lots and lots of other information as well as the normal light that you get on photographs. One of the other interesting facts we found about guano, I'm not obsessed with guano, but I do know quite a lot about it, is that it has a unique spectral signature. This is important because if you think about it, although the emperor penguins breed on ice, and therefore their guano is brown on a white background, the other penguin species, they breed on rocky areas. So if they've got reddy brown guano on a reddy brown background, it's quite difficult to see. But in the infrared, the color of the guano is completely different. We don't see this with the human eye, but the satellite does. So we can look for this unique colour in the infrared and find all of the smaller penguin colonies automatically. And this has been done for the whole of Antarctica as well. The two species of penguins that, that breed together in the Antarctic, the chinstraps and the adelies, breed at different times. And the chicks can't process 
the krill particularly well. So their guano turns a different colour, it turns a very deep red as soon as they're hatched. Because one hatches in December and one hatches in late January, if we look for this signal in the satellite imagery, it can tell us which species are where and help us then differentiate between the species. The satellites do allow us to go to many places that we can't go to on the ground. Almost half of all emperor penguin colonies have never been visited on the ground yet, so that's probably just too, too tricky to get there, too dangerous in some cases. So it allows us to upscale, really, and to look at all of the colonies on a yearly basis. We're now tracking emperor penguin colonies every year by satellite and, and counting their population. Satellites can be used to get a first glimpse at places we'd otherwise struggle to get to. But in natural history filmmaking, satellites are never enough. You really do have to go there. Once you're there, there are all sorts of ways that clever camera work can give us a new perspective on the landscape around us. We've talked about some of them in the podcast before. Hidden cameras, time-lapse photography, slow motion, and of course, filming from drones. We went to Greenland, to the middle of the ice cap, to film these very blue and incredible lakes. This is Guiche. My name is Guillermo Armero, but everybody knows me as Guiche, which is my sort of uh, English name. And I'm a camera operator and a drone pilot. Guiche also worked on Earth from Space, but more on the Earth side than the space side. The idea behind Earth from Space is that we could show to the public a different perspective of the world with satellite images and drone footage. The ice cap is not anymore just white. We've got these blue lakes, fresh water, which have been created in the middle of the ice cap by the global warming. The glacier just looks like a never-ending white, like a salt desert almost. It's like almost like landing on the moon. Everything you can see is white apart from these very, very blue sapphire colours. It was just stunning, it was incredible. I, I just never thought that I could see something like that in my life. It was stunning, it was beautiful. So getting a person in the middle of the ice cap, it was quite expensive for the production to do. The only way to get there is by helicopter. Plus also we needed to wait for the right temperature and the right wind and the right weather, really. So we had very limited time to shoot. Filming natural history sequences is a time-consuming business. It's not uncommon to send three people on a shoot for a month or more to get a sequence that's less than ten minutes long. For Geish, he could only get a helicopter for five hours. It took 45 minutes to fly to the ice caps and 45 minutes to fly back, which meant he had a grand total of three and a half hours to find and film three of these sapphire-blue meltwater lakes on his own, flying a drone in some pretty tricky conditions. Going to film to the ice cap is quite tricky with drones. The GPS and the compass of the drone would not work because the drones are designed at the end of the day to work in Europe, America and different places, but not so much in the north and the south. But the main problem was that we were losing connection all the time. In normal circumstances, what will happen is if you lose connection with the drone, the drone is designed to get back to you. And this is done by GPS coordinates. So there's no problem. The problem is when the drone is not connected to the GPS, 
the compass is not right and you lose the connection, the drone just keeps going with the wind. You were going down, the drone keeps going down, you were going left, it will go left. And there is nothing you can do. A few times the drone was just free flying all over the lakes. It could go left, right, down, up. I could just see it going, just waiting and praying to get back the connection with the drone because there was nothing you could do. The screen was black and the drone didn't know where it was and the compass wasn't working. The drone was just free flying. So for these five seconds that you are staring at the black screen, you're thinking, will I ever get back the image? Will I ever get back the drone? Until all of a sudden pops and you can see some footage. So you, you need to start thinking about, okay, well, if I'm seeing this with drone, where could the drone be? That was our only chance and we just needed to get back with some footage. I lost connection with the drone, coming back to where I was, close to where the helicopter was. And all of a sudden, connection lost, so the drone just flew past the helicopter by three meters, four meters. The drone was like, Nyong. remember the helicopter guys, and they were like, what are you doing? Stop this drone, you're going to crash it again in the helicopter. But for these three, four, five seconds, which to me, it was just never ending. There's nothing you can do. That's the way it is. It was stressful. You are thinking more about the composition of the shot, the settings of the camera, the clips that you have done already, the clips that you need to get, the movement, the next clip, what we need. How can I make this story? How can I get that? And there was lots of technical things which could go wrong, so I was always thinking about how to solve it. We filmed for three and a half hours, of which we probably got less than an hour worth of footage, something like that. I think I really enjoy going there with the helicopter and coming back. Flying the drone wasn't that enjoyable. <laughs> and I remember coming back on the helicopter thinking, is that what I want to do in my life? That's really stressful. But at the same time, it was one of the best experience I ever had. The place was incredible, but just having the opportunity to film there and see the things that I saw. To be able to walk on a glacier that there's hundreds and hundreds of kilometers anywhere you look, but there's nothing apart from ice. You know that not many people have been there. It was just stunning. There's a psychological phenomenon often experienced by astronauts who've looked down on Earth from the edge of space. It's called the overview effect, and it's described as quite a profound cognitive shift it's the change in perspective you get from seeing the Earth as it truly is. Immense, yet cosmically tiny. A complete and complex system. A shifting, changing, living marble. Wrapped snugly in protective atmosphere, hurtling through the infinite void of space. The overview effect has several facets. More empathy for your fellow man. A feeling of purpose and belonging. A statistically significant reduction in depression and anxiety and a profound sense of peace. And all this simply from the act of looking down on our one and only home. You've been listening to the BBC Earth podcast. I'm Emily Knight, and as always, if you want more stories and videos from BBC Earth, you can sign up to our email newsletter at bbcearth.com newsletter. Come back next week for our final episode in this series.
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.